All right, let's turn in the Word of God together to John 14. John 14, and we'll be looking today at verses 5 through 12. I hesitate to use this expression, although I will, but uh, again, I do it hesitatingly. Uh, This is a familiar, uh, at least, verse of Scripture that begins our text. However, I heard recently that we should never assume that a text of Scripture is familiar. Uh, There are those who uh, have never read these verses. And um, so we've got to be careful that we say familiar. Now, I hope it is to those who are in Christ and been saved that these are familiar passages. Uh, But certainly we don't want to make the assumption that every person under the sound of my voice this morning is familiar with these verses, but uh, we we do want to uh, look carefully at this today. John 14, beginning in verse number 5 and down through verse number 12. The Bible tells us in verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in John. Of course, we observed the Lord's Supper last Sunday during this time. But you'll remember that in verses 4 and 5, we gave you kind of a preview of the first verse we read tonight. But back today, back in verse 4, Jesus had made this statement, and whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Jesus makes that statement, and the very next statement from Thomas is, Lord, we don't know the way. Jesus had just told them, you do know the way. Thomas says, Lord, how can we go where you go? We don't know the way. So we seem to have a disagreement. However, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the questioning that continued between Jesus and his disciples. Remember, the Lord had told them again and again and again that his going away was coming. He had reminded them and begun to explain to them that I must die, I must go away. And he's been preparing them for that coming day. So as he's doing this, he's told them, I'm going to my father and I'm going to your father. He was showing them that there is a common denominator between them. My father is your father. Remember, we talked about the Lord speaking of the house of many mansions and spoke about going to the Father's house. And we dealt a little bit about the subject of heaven, and we should have come to the conclusion that if we were to define heaven, we could define heaven. Heaven is Christ. 
heaven's Christ. It would be possible for us to get so worked up over what these mansions are, but remember, it's the presence of the Father, the presence of God. Jesus is telling Thomas and the disciples that are listening here, he says, you know where I'm going and you know the way. The the way is faith in me. Jesus makes a declarative statement. He says, I am the way. He would speak often. He would speak clearly. Sometimes he would speak a little dimly. But they knew Jesus could only speak truth. It's an amazing thought to think that every time Jesus opened his mouth, he only spoke truth. That can't be said of any other person. Every one of us at one time or another in our life have lied or we have twisted the truth. We have not spoken accurate things. Jesus only spoke truth. He could only speak truth because he was God and is God. So to speak truth into these men Thomas, in a way, is telling Jesus in verse 4, Jesus, you're not really telling us the truth. He was telling Thomas, or Thomas was telling the Lord, you're doing something that's out of your possibility. He said, we don't know the way, but Jesus says, you do know the way. I think we can see where this discussion is going. But Jesus doesn't answer the question the way that you think he would answer it. Jesus does not rebuke him here. He does not reprove him but he does remind them of what they should have already known. Now, what we don't know about Thomas in verse number five is it was Thomas the appointed spokesperson. In other words, did Thomas speak up and was he speaking for the group and all were in agreement, Thomas, we all feel the same way Thomas does? Or was this just Thomas's lack of faith? Now, remember, why was their faith wavering? They have become now anxious. They begin asking questions because now Jesus, for the first time, has told them, I'm getting ready to go away from you. They knew what that meant. That meant that Jesus, who we've walked with, we've spent every waking moment with, he's not going to be here anymore. Anxiety begins to to build up. I think it would be fair to say, not in the same vein, but if we were to say that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and the presence of God is going to be removed from you, I think there'd be a few anxious moments. I think we'd be deeply concerned about spending one moment without the presence of God, who, of course, the presence of God in us is in the the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're never alone. The disciples at this moment did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, There, the presence of the Holy Spirit was there, but not dwelling in them. So uh, let's not be too hard on these disciples and think, what's the matter with them? Why is their faith so weak? But we do know that Thomas, whether or not he's speaking for himself or he's speaking for all of them, he says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. That's paraphrased. And how can we know the way? As if Jesus has never told them. So what Jesus is doing in verses 6 through 12 is answering the question of Thomas in verse number 5, and he's going to answer that. Now, as we look at verse number 6, again, notice what he says. Jesus saith unto him. So it appears as if Jesus is speaking directly to Thomas, although the other disciples are hearing them. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Thomas is offering a bit of an objection here. We, we don't know. How can we know? Yet it's been read 
And it's been seen by us over and over and over again. But we need to understand something about what Jesus is saying. If we were to look at verse number six, and if we're not careful, we would try to break this verse up. And let me just use this as an illustration. If we were to break this up into a three-part sermon, we would be doing a bit of a disservice to the Scripture. In other words, it would be not accurate for us to say, here's three points about Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. They're not three separate points. What Jesus is saying and he's declaring is he is the way because he's truth and life. Now that is an important distinction because what Jesus is answering is the question about how can we know the way. Now it would not be proper to tell somebody that Jesus in the way that we think about it is, okay, if you want to, if you want to know the way to God, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It would be simplified by saying this, Jesus Christ is the way. Why? Because he is truth and he's life. The answer is, why is Jesus the way? Because he's truth and he's life. Now, we're going to talk about these things. He is truth and he is life. But these are not three separate ways to God. There's only one way to God. Jesus Christ is the way. It's important to distinguish between those two because he is speaking about one thing, one way, me. That is a very important distinction to make. He's explaining when he says truth and life what he means by the way. If you tell somebody who is unaware of this text, like I said at the beginning, familiar, somebody might say, hear you say Jesus Christ is the way. And they might ask you the question, how do you know he's the way? Now, your answer should not be this, um, because it's, that's just the way it is. Your answer to the question that somebody says, how can you know the way to God? How do you know Jesus Christ is the way? Your answer would be this, because he is truth and he's life. That's the proper answer. Now, if you use that vernacular in society, we assume people know Christ is the way. We think we can go out on the streets of any place and we can just proclaim Jesus Christ is the way. Now, are we proclaiming a truth? Yes. We're proclaiming something that the Bible says is completely accurate. Yes, Jesus Christ is the way. But you leave the hearer saying this. What does that mean? How do I get that way? Why should I trust that way? The answer is, is because Jesus is the truth and the life. That's what makes him the way. Now, before we even dig a little bit further, notice Jesus says, I am. This is one of the seven referred to the great I am statements, all that appear in John's gospel. We know in John 6, 48, he says, I'm the bread of life. He declares himself to be, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, John 10, 11, I am the door. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the good shepherd. John 14, 6, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he says here. And then in John 15, 1, we'll see in a number of weeks, I am the true vine. So what Jesus is declaring, he's declaring, I am the way. I am what? The way to whom? The way to God. When you want to know the way, you have to know what am I trying to get to? I just, it doesn't help me to say, there's the way, 
if I don't know where the way is going, right? If I just take you out to I-70 and point, so that's, it's that way. You're going to say, what is that way? Now, you can take a lot of guesses. If you go 70 west, you go 70 east. You know what towns you're going to run into, but you don't know. You just know that's a way. What Jesus is doing is specifically saying, I am the way to God. He's not leaving this in generic terms. So we don't, we don't treat Jesus as just an example of showing us the way. He is the way. Does everybody notice the distinction there? He's not, he's not, he's not pointing the way. He is the way. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God was taken away the sin of the world, he was pointing people to the way, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ declares, I am the way, he's not pointing to the way, he's saying, I am that way. He's not just a prophet that was sent to teach us the way to go. Sometimes we make that mistake. We say Jesus was just a prophet to show us the way. He did no such thing. He was declaring, I am the way. The prophets who came before him came to point us to the way, Jesus Christ, who is the truth and the life. So he's not just a prophet. He wasn't just an example. And the most popular thing to declare him today, he is not just here to guide us in the way. In other words, he's not just here to show us the way for a prosperous, happy, healthy life which is the popular Jesus of today. It's not Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. Jesus Christ is the way to make your life prosperous and happy, and we know that's a fallacy and that's not of God. So specifically, when Jesus says, I'm the way, truth and life is the only way to get to God. That's what he's declaring. Number two, he is also the way from God to men. So what you have happening here is you you have Jesus saying, I am the way to God, but he's also saying, I am the way from God to men. In other words, everything comes from the Father, God the Father through the Son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 declares this to be the truth. All right, Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 3. And we'll, we'll see... And Paul, of course, is the, the author of the book of Ephesians. In verse number three, Ephesians one, Paul writes these words, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So he is the way from God to man. Jesus was sent to man and receives all spiritual blessings from God the Father through the Son. Jesus Christ is the way. So not only from God to man, but he's also the only way for man to get to God. To be the way means Christ is our all and all. To be the all in all means he is all of our righteousness. He is our only necessary high priest. He is our only, he is the only offering for sin. What Jesus did is by his holy life, he honored the law of God, obeyed the law of God, and by his death, he enabled God 
to be the just and the justifier of those who believe. In other words, by his perfect obedience, by his righteousness, when we say Jesus is our all and all, we mean that. From beginning to end, Jesus Christ is the way for all things. I don't have any righteousness. I don't, I don't have a holy life that I can bring before God and say, God, look, I've been in perfect obedience to your law. I cannot offer that. Now, one man's life may appear better than the next, but that is not enough to get me to God. When Jesus said, I'm the way, he wasn't saying, I'm the way. Now, if you bring along this, pardon this expression, if you bring along your own baggage to help get you there, that'll be the, will put you over the edge. No, he says, when he says, I'm the way, I'm everything. I am the entirety of anything you can think of. So he's the way to God, he's the way from God to man, and he's the way from man to God. I know that sounds confusing, but we understand it. So when he says, I am the truth, or he says, I'm the way, the truth, what does he mean? He is the truth itself. He's not just one of many truths. I could give you a list of topics today I could give you, let me rephrase that. I could give you a number of, of words and I could give you the definition of the word and it would be true, okay? 10 definitions, 10 words, 10 definitions, all of them we'd agree and say, listen, all 10 of those definitions are accurate. They're all true. What Jesus is declaring though, I am the only true God. I am the God-man. I am 100% man, 100% God. But he's saying, I am not one of truth. I am the truth. He is the very, he completes what truth is. He, he makes up the entire body of truth. Now, what were all the Old Testament types and Old Testament shadows and all the sacrifices and every item, by the way, in the temple and the tabernacle? They were representations of the perfection of Christ. That was the entire reason for the tabernacle in the wilderness. The entire reason for the temple was not just so that it was temporary. This was the plan of God. So that for the foundation of the world, this would be a means of pointing people to what is actually true. Jesus is truth. He is the true way as opposed to every other false way. Now, this makes that interaction between Jesus and Pilate. You, you recall that. I don't have the reference in front of me. But Pilate asked Jesus the question, what is truth? Jesus declares to him, I, I am the truth. So there's an example of Pilate who's asking the question, what is truth? So if somebody asks you, what is truth? Jesus Christ is truth. That same who I've declared to be the way is truth. And society says, okay, that's your truth. Jesus doesn't say I'm true for some and not for others. I am truth. All truth is me. It's not that I just speak truth, which he did. It's not just because I do truth. Just like when the Bible says God is love, that doesn't mean God illustrates love. It means he's actually that. Now, our minds have a hard time grasping this. 
Because we think in human terms, well, love means I do this, this, and this for the person I care about. Truth means it's spoken, seen. He says, I am the truth. I am love. So then he uses the word life. Christ speaks of life in contrast with what's the opposite of life? Death. Do you know there are only, really, there's only two states that a human being can be in? You're either alive or you're dead. And you say, what about people in hospitals who are, they're not sure. If there's still something, there's still life. Yes, I know we get into technicalities, the soul, you're either alive or you're dead. You are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Now, man, not to be morbid this morning, not all men will die the same way. Okay? You're not all, we're not all going to die the same way unless something happens this morning and we all go. Again, not trying to be morbid. We all go. If you're in Christ, it's all right. We're not going to miss each other. We're going to still be together. We're going to see it. Unless we all go in that kind of a capacity, we're going to see death in a different way. We're going to go at different times. Jesus declares, I am the only way of life. See, you don't have to do anything for your death to come. It's already come. It's already promised. Like, I don't have to tell you to go home and say, if if you want to die, you're going to have to do this, this, and this, and this. Death's already promised. It's coming. And Jesus is declaring, I am the exact opposite of death. And by the way, I I like life. I love life. I love eternal life more than my physical life, but I love every aspect of life. And by the way, you should love your physical life. You should love the life that God has given you. Why? Because he gave it to you. You say, my life is not perfect, but God gave you that life. Love your life. But don't love this life so much that you miss what life is going to matter the most, which is my eternal life. As a child of God, I already possess eternal life. It's not something I'm waiting for. It's already something I have. It's a present possession. When he says, I am the life, he is saying not I am a way to life. Again, just like he said with truth, I am life itself. In John 1, 4, here's what the Bible says from our very first, maybe the second message in this series on John. Here's what Jesus said about himself. Or that the Bible John said about you, in him was life. That's a reference to Christ. And the life was the light of men. And then we saw in John 5:26, again, a reference to life. The Bible tells us, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Self sustained life. You are doing absolutely nothing today to keep yourself alive. Think about that for a minute. Now, you might be taking steps to try to prolong life. You might be exercising. You might be eating what you're supposed to and not what you're not supposed to. You're doing things because somebody has told you along the way these will contribute to a longer life. But you are not self-sustained. 
Now, here's the, here's the kicker of all this. He's never been without life. You grasping that? Because you all had a beginning. I had a beginning. When life began, Jesus has no beginning. Life in and of himself. So he is the source and giver of life. He's referred to throughout the book of John as the light of life, the word of life. We see in verses, he came that we might have life. In Adam, all men die. It's an amazing thing that in some way, some mysterious way, we say the reason we're separated from God is because we sin. The reality of Scripture is in some mysterious way, we actually died in Adam. We're somehow relegated in being a part of that. In Adam, all men die. Which tells me this, that even if we could live without sinning, personally, we'd still be dead. Because the Bible declares, in Adam, all men die. You're not dying because you committed a sin. You're dying because you are an Adam. And the Bible mysteriously declares that. And that's one of the great mysteries of God. I would still be condemned even if I had never sinned because I'm in Adam. A lot of people like to say the only thing we share in Adam is the fact that we are sinners. No, the Bible doesn't declare that. The Bible declares that we in Adam all men die. We die as a result of that. That's a mystery for another time. So we know that without Christ, we have no truth. In Adam, all men died, which means we have lost life. No man can come to God. No man can know God. No, nor can no man live before God except in Christ. Christ Jesus is the only way to God. Why? Because he is truth and because he is life. So now when we hear that verse, don't make the mistake of saying when someone says, what is the way to God? Jesus Christ is the way. When they say, why is Jesus Christ the way? It's because he's true and because he's the life. Don't say Jesus Christ has three ways. The way, the truth, and the life as if they're three separate things. He's the way because he's the truth and he's the life. So that seems kind of simplistic and unimportant. It's very important. It matters how we interpret Scripture and how we understand what Jesus is saying and keeping the proper context when you go through a, a message like this, understanding what Jesus is saying. If I just gave you a statement and an answer to a question, you would want to know what the question was that resulted in my answer, right? Thomas's question was, in, base, in response to Jesus' statement, you already know the way. And then he says, how can we know it? That's what Jesus responded to. So let's move on. So here's what Jesus extends this answer. He says, if ye had known me, me is Christ, the way, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to remind them you already know this. If you've ever counseled with a person who struggled in the area of assurance, it is one of the hardest things to get to the point where 
People who battle with assurance are questioning often what they already know. And you don't give them new Bible verses. You take them back to what you already know. And you say, listen, you already know him. You already are in Christ. You don't need to pray a prayer again or get baptized again to make sure that it took. You'd be surprised how much bad theology when someone comes to a pastor and a pastor is told, I'm not really sure I'm saved. How many times that pastor just says, well, listen, let's just pray again and throw you back in the water just to be sure. That was never the intent. Assurance is based on this. Jesus Christ is the way. And if that is your statement of faith today, and you're battling with assurance, lack of assurance, there's your assurance statement. Go out into the world and make that statement and see if you can find 9 out of 10 that will agree with you on that statement. You'll find they won't. We take it for granted. We talk about Christ alone, grace alone, by faith alone, the glory of God alone. We talk about those five solas around here so often. We think it's part of everyday vernacular. The world doesn't even know these things. But praise God, we're talking about those in our homes. We talk about those in our church. We post them on our website. We put them on social media. But understand, just saying things like this doesn't always lead to people fully understanding. But Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's giving them assurance from his own mouth. In one sense, the word, the disciples knew him. They knew what he had said. But in another sense, he's telling them, you don't know me like you should. It's interesting that in a couple chapters later in John 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus, as he's preparing to go away from them, He's still talking about this. And again, this is down the road for us, but it kind of gives us a preview here. John 16, verses 12 through 15. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Stop and think about what Jesus is telling the disciples who sat with him, walked with him, ate with him. They were with him 24-7. He tells those disciples, there are things you cannot bear at this moment. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth, who does the Holy Spirit testify to in us right now? Jesus Christ. He's telling them about the Spirit of truth that's coming. You and I are looking back saying we already have received the Spirit of truth. He's telling the disciples, when the Spirit of truth does what? When he comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. Oh, if we could grasp that. The Holy Spirit takes no glory for himself. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's not going to speak of himself. He's going to speak of Christ. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He, that's the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. And then Jesus says this, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while ye shall see me because I go to the Father. So John 14, John 15, and into John 16, Jesus is still talking about these same truths that he's answering in John 14. So what do we know about this? 
Well, we know that the disciples being Jews, they struggled with tradition. They struggled with things and the thought of an earthly kingdom. Do not lose sight of the fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Jew believed that when Jesus Christ came, he was going to establish an earthly kingdom right then. The Jews still had this going around in their mind. They would have heard this all of their life. They would have said, wait a minute, your kingdom is now. And Jesus is telling them, no, my kingdom as you think is not now. But what do we know about this knowledge of Christ? Well, we know what John 17, 3 teaches us, and this is life eternal. Now listen to this. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We see this is to have eternal life, that you might know the only true God, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in our narrative, another voice chimes in. Verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. This is just like us. Lord, if you'll just show me one more thing, then I'll be satisfied. One more thing will never be enough. You will say, give me one more reason. And it's interesting the way that Jesus deals with Philip because Jesus deals a little bit, if, and again, I don't want to read into the text. This is just my, the way I view this and the way I'm seeing it and the way I'm reading it. It appears to me that Jesus is a little bit firmer with Philip because he asked him a more provoking question. Now, whether or not now is Philip now the spokesman, Thomas said his piece, now Philip stands up and speaks his piece. Look what Jesus tells him in verse nine. Jesus saith unto him, directed now at Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Now, it's interesting the way he deals with Philip. Here, Philip speaks for the entire group possibly, or just for himself, just like Thomas had done. He's asking the Lord, now keep this in mind, He's asking the Lord to show them in a visible manifestation, show us the Father. Manifest yourself the way God showed himself to Moses and to Israel, and we will be satisfied, and it won't bother us as much when you leave. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a very large paraphrase. That's what he's saying. If you can, Lord, if you can show us the Father the way the Father showed himself to Moses and to Israel, then we'll be satisfied. There are some today that say that very thing. I'll believe God if God manifests and reveals himself in a flashing, thunderous manner. Man still, man still would struggle in their belief. We understand that as Jesus deals with Philip here, there's a reference that's made. Now, it, doesn't, it doesn't read that way, but it, it doesn't say, hey, turn to this reference. But what, if you look at Exodus 33, verses 18 through 20, this is when Jesus declares to Moses. Now, I, I hesitate to sometimes take us to these texts because I don't ever feel like I give us enough background. Moses, in this text, is praying for God's presence. All right, now you got to think in mind 
God, God was not indwelling the believer the way that he indwells us today. But in verse 12 of Exodus 33, verse 12, verse 13, and then through verse 17, Moses offers this prayer to God. He asks God to show his presence. But I want to emphasize verses 18 through 23. Moses says this, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, let me just stop there. What God just declared is a marvelous thing. Right. If we stopped right there, what God is telling Moses and what, what, what he's saying in all these things, but then notice what is said in verse 20. And he said, God, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, and I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now, if you don't think God was serious about the glory of God, Exodus proves that point. And you say, why are you saying all that? Because Philip is asking Jesus to do something that God told Moses, you couldn't see me and live. Philip says, I want to see this and I'll, it'll be suffice. Jesus takes all that away and he says, Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You and I don't need a demonstration like this to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. Look how, look how he deals with Philip. Was there any one thing that Jesus, through our study, has emphasized more than his oneness with the Father? How many times had Jesus said, I and my Father are one? But now Jesus asked Philip, Philip, I've been with you so long. What had Philip seen? Philip would have witnessed the miracles. Philip would have heard his words. And he's telling Philip, how is it that you still don't know that I'm God in human flesh when I have shown all this to you? Because there's a spiritual principle here. You do not see God with natural eyes. You see it in spiritual understanding. You see it by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Folks, even if our human eyes could see God, it would not comprehend it in its human understanding. The only reason you and I can comprehend God in any way, shape, or form is because the Holy Spirit of God is opening our eyes and illuminating our hearts that we have some semblance of understanding. I say this, uh, it's beating a dead horse. You could have 12 PhDs in theology and still not see God. I'm all for education, but if, if you're after education so that you can see God more clearly, and that's what people are doing, they say, listen, I've been studying God all my life, and suddenly I'm seeing God in a new light. I would dare say you're not seeing God, you're seeing the devil. Because you can't see him and live in the sense, and even in our humanity, we can't look upon God. Why? Because sin. 
We won't be able to see God for who He really is and see Jesus Christ until our eyes, until our body has been, the sin's been removed. But notice, He tells him in verse number 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Folks, even our redemption, even what's been revealed to us in our own redemption apart from Christ is impossible. The reason you saw your need for a Savior was because of Christ. The reason you continue to see your need of Him every day is because of Christ. You can't even see the reason why do I need to be redeemed unless Christ through the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. Sometimes we, we ashamedly get frustrated at people who just won't see the truth. Every one of us have been guilty of shoving a Bible under somebody's nose and saying, why don't you get this? Because apart from the Holy Spirit opening those eyes and opening those ears, it is impossible for them to understand their need of redemption. That's why I'm hesitant to use the term, here's the plan of salvation. A plan is one, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, it's built. Now again, the Romans road is a wonderful way to do it. But if you give somebody the impression that if you'll just stop at every stop along the road, right? You're in God. No. You see, God has to illuminate the eyes to be able to even understand why Romans road matters. The plan of salvation only makes sense to eyes that have been opened. And by the time the eyes have opened, you've already been given faith to believe and you're going to believe it because he's illuminated you and given you the truth and he's given you the gift of repentance. That's why we say repent and believe. Not because we can give it to you, but because he shows it to you. But we declare the same truth. We could say Jesus is simply asking Peter the way we would talk in our normal day language. Do you not believe this, Philip? Do you not believe that the Father and I are one? Do you not believe that I'm speaking on behalf of my Father? The words Christ spoke and the works that Christ did, now get this, were not of himself as a man, but of the Father who dwelt in him. In other words, look what Jesus says. I speak not of myself, that's Jesus speaking, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Jesus was saying, the words I'm speaking to you and the works you've seen me do, Philip, don't view them as the work of a mere man, but view them as the work of the Father who sent me. Again, go back to our original text. Jesus Christ is the way to God. So look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now notice this verse is kind of chopped in half. Or else, believe me for the very work's sake. It's a, it's a wise practice, folks, and this is just a side note. When you study the Bible, take the Bible and try to divide it 
Break it down. Find out where God is placing the emphasis. Find out where God is putting the brakes. Sometimes in our language, our English language, we tend to just view where the commas are, where the semicolons are, where the colons are. Where the... He breaks this up and he says, here, here it is, Philip. Believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, what Jesus was declaring, that the faith of those disciples, the faith of Philip, which we know sometimes wavered, sometimes wasn't as strong, the Lord patiently tells them, believe the words, not as words like everybody else spoke, but words that were spoken with authority. I'm speaking to you the truth that I am my Father in one Take those as authority. I am the revelation of all those Old Testament scriptures you've heard. I am, I've all been revealed. And if you don't do that, then believe me for the works. The works that were done, the healing, only God could do it. You know, the thing about the miracles is almost every person to a man said, only, only God could heal a person. Can you imagine the difference when Jesus Christ rose Lazarus from the grave? You see, it wasn't that they didn't know that it was of God. What they would not, they refused to believe is that Jesus Christ and God were equal and one. So when Jesus Christ did the works, what he's saying, go back to the verse we just read, he said, I'm doing the work of the Father, God, that you believe in, but you don't believe in me as God. Is everybody following? That, that makes this make sense. The works I'm doing, Philip, are the works of my Father. They're declaring to you this God, the Father, that you so desperately want to see. When you see me, you are seeing the Father. You are seeing a manifestation of the Father. When we look at Christ, we're seeing God. So the Lord tells them in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now again, your, your Bible may break this up or it may include it. There's still two more verses that seem to be connected. We're not going to talk about verses 13 and 14 today, but if you look at verse 12, because they're going to be related, but he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, comma, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now again, don't put yourself in every single situation and say, all right, that's me. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. The Bible has not yet been fully completed. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about something that they could completely identify with what he was saying. And by the way, we do, we do know came true. What he tells them is he's telling these disciples who believing on him would later be filled <clears throat> with the Holy Spirit and would perform some of the same miracles in the physical realm as a confirmation for the truth of the gospel. 
What was the purpose of the disciples being able to heal after Jesus went to the cross? The only purpose was to confirm the gospel. That's it. They did not have a complete revelation of what God was doing. Now, if you study your Bible, you will realize those disciples, these specific disciples, did go on to duplicate some of those miracles. Some of them. But what he says is very interesting. He says, greater works than these shall he do. Folks, today, I'm going to give you the answer to this in a moment. Today, there's an emphasis in the church on physical works being the greater thing. In other words, there are people who believe that if, if I could, which I can't, if I could walk down, and, and I'm going to use Mark, he's hitting on the front row today, and Mark had an ailment. There are people that believe if I could walk down to Mark, touch him on the head, and he could leave here without that ailment, that I'm doing a great work. And they would say, that's proof that God is really good. Jesus is undoing that whole thing. When he says greater works than these, the physical signs and the physical miracles were never the, the, the intention of being that which received all the glory. What are the greater works? Oh, man may applaud me and man may say, wow, we went down to that church on Petrie Road and the pastor came down and he healed a man sitting on the front row who had an ailment. Suddenly, that man is something. Jesus says, yes, you're going to do some of that physical realm work. But do you know every healing that Jesus did was not for the physical realm? It was pointing to the greater work that was needed in the spiritual realm. Folks, what good would it do? Now, Mark's a believer. But what good would it do if Mark was an unbeliever and I healed him of his ailment and he walked out of here as unsaved as he was? What value is that? So I cured Mark of an ailment that he's still going to die. How many more years do you want to live, Mark? 30 years. 30 more years, Mark, you're still going to die. But that ailment you have now, don't worry about that anymore. He's still going to die. Oh, temporarily, Mark's happy. Mark says, wow, you healed me. By the way, those disciples, as they healed, there always was a spiritual purpose. The greater works, folks, are spiritual works. The spiritual work would come through the preaching of the gospel. If your emphasis on the disciples after Jesus Christ went to the Father was the miracles and not the preaching of the gospel, you've missed the entire purpose. Because, number one, they did not have a completed copy of the revelation of, from Genesis to Revelation to declare all the truths of God. Yet you and I do. I don't need a, I don't need a sign. I don't need anybody to physically heal anybody. It doesn't prove anything. Even if they could, which I don't believe they can. Now, if God lays his hand on a person and says, listen, I'm gonna, I, I've got stories I can tell you of people who went to doctors with cancer and came home without cancer. It wasn't because a doctor touched them. It's because a doctor walked out and said, I have no idea what happened, but the cancer's gone. I know of one case in particular, the cancer wasn't there, but the person still died later from something else. But you see the point here. These greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. 
The preaching of the gospel, folks, the conversion of sinners, those are the greater works. I would rather see a room full of people repent and believe the gospel than to see a room full of paralyzed people get up out of their bed and walk. Now, that seems harsh and that seems mean because they say, listen, do you know a paralyzed person? Well, yeah, I do. I do know one. And I would tell you that person would not trade their faith in Christ to get up out of that wheelchair and walk. And guess what? They're living their life. They're in a wheelchair. Since 16 years old, they've been in a wheelchair. Serving at a Christian camp. Fell out of a hayloft, landed on a pitchfork on the handle, broke their back, and is still praising God. Because what's happened is they understand the greater work is not whether I can use my physical legs. It's the spiritual work of knowing God and being in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, the person in the wheelchair knows this. One day, I'm not going to need this chair. This chair is not rolling into heaven with God. This is the life that God has given me now. And yes, it's difficult. But I also understand that the greater work is the conversion of a soul. Folks, I can't tell you I can't tell you the answer to all of life's issues because I know this. Life is going to be very difficult. Life is going to be hard. But I do know that this Savior who says these greater works, these miracles, these signs in the physical realm only serve to confirm the claims of the apostles as proof of the presence of God. In other words, when those apostles healed, it was to declare unto them, there's a real God. Folks, those miracles were no longer needed. We have the Word of God today. It's full. It's complete. There's nothing to be added to it. You don't need another sign. You don't need a person healed. The regeneration of the soul, the conversion, the salvation of a sinner is a greater work than any physical healing. We understand that Jesus, when He said that to them, He said, it's all because I go unto my Father. Listen, while Jesus was here, he suffered humiliation. In the scope of eternity, I know we focus a lot on Jesus' healing, but on the, on the scope of eternity and the number of lives, he only healed a few people. I'm not, I'm not making him irrelevant. But when you study Jesus' life from what we see, it wasn't a giant say, hey, everybody who's got an ailment, come unto me and I'll heal you. It was a very select few. But here's one thing we do know he did intentionally. He raised one from the dead. But even till today, there is still part of the Godhead, there's still part of his glory that is still veiled. There are still things that we don't know about who God is. So what has he given us to do? Until you see me, go and preach this gospel. What is this gospel? Jesus Christ is the way. Why? Because he's the truth and he's the life. 
Listen, we don't preach the gospel and we don't preach Christ just because it's the popular thing to do. As a matter of fact, you're proclaiming a very unpopular message today. Folks, it's going to get worse. The gospel is being hated at an alarming rate. Not the, not the watered-down false gospel, the true gospel. People are trying to poke holes in everything in this book, and they're viewing it through human eyes. And what they're saying is, is God was wrong about this, God was wrong about that, God was wrong about this, this is unfair, this isn't right. Jesus Christ is the truth. If you know him, you know the Father. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ.